You're listening to What It's Like with Luce, a podcast highlighting ordinary people doing extraordinary things. I'm your host, Lucy Norris, and on this week's episode, I'm joined by the owner of Bingo Loco, amongst many other things. Growing up in West Dublin, this week's guest completely transformed his life when he packed a backpack, headed to the airport, and set out to see the world one wild adventure at a time. From couch surfing in opium dens to giving TED Talks in India, living with monks and accidentally ending up on the frontline fight against ISIS, there's little this guy hasn't done. Returning to Dublin and settling back into life as a broke traveller sparked the inner entrepreneur in him and he began setting up businesses tailored to cater the events industry. No ordinary tale, this is the story of how a game of bingo in an Iranian military compound inspired an event that would soon entertain over 220,000 people globally every year. Without further ado, here's what it's like to be William Mara. Before we get stuck into the episode, I just wanted to say that if there is changes in sound quality throughout, I'm very sorry, but in respect of social distancing during COVID-19, I've had to record episodes remotely. In this challenging time, we're all trying our best, so I really hope everyone is staying safe and that you enjoy the episode. Welcome, Will. Thanks so much for coming on and talking to me today. I think you've done a crazy amount of things in life already so um, I feel like it would make the most sense to go all the way back to the very beginning of where this all started and uh, chat a little bit about what it was like for you growing up. Um, sure okay right so growing up was, uh, was an interesting one. I, uh, I grew up in Blanchetown in West Dublin and I had a father who you know he's a workaholic He's the kind of guy who, you know, left home at the age of 40 to the rural farm in West Cork and worked really hard for every single cent he had. And he still has that kind of outlook today. Uh, and I had a mother who, I guess, struggled with a lot of the troubles in her early life from having an abusive partner and having an abusive, um, an abusive uh, mother as well. And so she ended up kind of having her, her own vices in life and, you know, would struggle with depression, struggle with drink and stuff like that. And so... When she'd passed away about 10 years ago, almost this year, um, it, I found myself being thrown into a new place because she was still kind of the glue that kind of kept the family together. And so I found myself around that time 10 years ago, you know, I was in college studying engineering, doing it because I was told I was going to be good at it. Um, not really ever thinking about it, but like that's what happens when you finish the leaving search. You kind of just do whatever everyone else is recommending. You don't really know what you want to do with your life. And so I ended up doing engineering and they were right, I was good at it, but I didn't enjoy it. So I left for the first class on it and had no idea what to do. And I found myself just getting thrown into the events industry, just getting really involved and, you know, entertaining people, social gathering. And it was, um, it was a bit of a revolution for me because I found myself at a time when I was feeling pretty uh, at, at a loss, filled with, you know, an environment that was full of people, full of something to do. An event is just a really long, you know, checklist of things to do, really. And so I was keeping myself very occupied. And, uh, and I was enjoying it. I was doing, doing well at it. And I was meeting a lot of, you know, crucial people. And, um, and somewhere along the way, I realized that what I was doing was, I wasn't really grieving. I was just, you know, instead of letting it hit me like, you know, a freight train, I ended up just kind of disguising um, a lot of it and working really hard. And so I kind of decided to pack it all in. So I, you know, had a bag in my cupboard and I just filled it full of things. And I just left, you know, on, you know, what would be the kind of, the backpacker's dream of, you know, a one-way ticket. And 
I finally let myself heal and, you know, and feel a lot of things and visit a lot of places and found a huge, you know, lust for travel. And I've, you know, it's kind of shaped, I guess, who I am today. So that was kind of how I got into the events and how I got, a, you know, found a passion for travel was, I guess, through grief, really, you know, in, in every sad situation in life, I often find that you are presented with another door that you can walk through if you want. And for me, it was a complete career change and a complete lifestyle choice, I guess. And when you decided to go traveling, did you go on your own? You just completely packed up everything and went or did you go with someone else? Um, yeah, no, I went completely on my own. I had, um, I just decided just to, you know, Asia had always been a place that fascinated me. And, you know, like everyone who, you know, in the last three years, you know, wanted to go backpacking, the first place they think of to go is probably Thailand. And, uh, and you know, I explored the typical, you know, Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, and, and really liked. So I said, you know, I'm going to pick up where I last left off. And I went back to Thailand and, uh, and explored India and, you know, went and hung out with sadhus and babas and all these holy men and tried a lot of spiritual experiences and, you know, giving talks, of, you know, a TED talk in Delhi about, you know, a business that I had just created that I was kind of also leaving behind about how to have a healthy relationship with technology and your devices. And then kind of going on from there, I explored, I'd say, what I mean, with, you know, 20 or 30 countries in and around Asia and, and getting really lost in it all. Um, I was doing passing meditation retreats where I was going to isolation for days and then no reading, no writing, no talking, no stimulation whatsoever. And living as a monk in China, learning, you know, Tai Chi and Kung Fu from Shaolin Masters, really just going off the beaten track, you know, backpacking around the place. And, you know, for example, couch surfing in opium dens in Iran and, um, you know, doing target practice with anti-Taliban vigilante forces in Pakistan and all these mad experiences um, that I guess, you know, I just kind of, I wouldn't say I lost my way, but I was just really welcoming any opportunities thrown by strangers. And I've been on the road for, for quite a long time. Um, and I felt like, you know, my, my comfortable and routine life in Dublin was just so, so far away from it, you know. But yeah, really kind of getting lost in the whole, the whole travel side of life and getting into, you know, all sorts of mad harebrained scenarios. Um, yeah, some of which I guess were good and some of which I guess weren't great, you know. Um, some of the most interesting one I'd say was probably you know, waking up and finding a picture of myself wearing military uniform on the front page of what it would be Ireland's biggest tabloid called a terror tourist. Can you explain a little bit about how you ended up becoming a terror tourist? It's a really, really long story, to be honest with you, but I'll give you the kind of the abbreviated summarized version of it because it's otherwise I'd be here for about five hours. But I'd been kind of backpacking around the Middle East and doing self-proclaimed what I would have called investigative travel blogging because it wasn't me going giving 10 tips to the city or giving like you know a, a guide on how to pack your backpack it was more so here's what life is actually like um near the afghani border here's what life is actually like um you know in in kurdistan iraq here's what it's like to be a, you know living in a refugee camp here's what it's like you know guys telling people know what it's like in these parts of the world it's not getting tourists and, and also i was kind of getting a bit of a buzz out of it because i was getting a kick out of the fact that they were getting a kick out of me but that i was there was an, a novelty to them and uh, uh, it was just, we were just so amused by each other. So you have this kind of wide-eyed curiosity in the same way they have this wide-eyed curiosity about you. And somewhere along the line, I'm not really sure of where, um, me and my pal got this brilliant idea to hitchhike across the, uh, the Kurdish border in the north of Iran into Iraq. And we changed a lot of Iranian money at a currency exchange, which basically is just 50 lads standing in the street. And there was this guy who was trying to smuggle a car. <laughs> Sorry, sounds so mental. <laughs> smuggling a car um, that he'd gotten somehow from Dubai into Iran and they're trying to get it into Iraq and so 
we, we needed a lift and we written some squiggle on a board that was meant to say the place we were going. And, and so we passed all these kind of oil tankers um, that were queuing up to try and get, you know, across the border. And, uh, and he dropped us off because he said he couldn't bring us any further. And so we go, we're, we're walking through this border. When a border isn't just a line, it's like this zone. It's like maybe, I don't know, like a 200 meter zone or 300 meter zone. And basically, it's a huge enclave on one side, and then you've got this no pass zone, and you've got another enclave. And you know, this guy comes up, he's wearing like a Christmas jumper, is all I can describe it for you. And he's like, uh, Come with me. And we were like, Oh no, we're just going across the border. Thanks, though. And he's like, No, no, you have to come with me. And we realized then that we were taken in by an undercover agent, um, which is part of the Iranian Border Patrol. And they basically interrogated us. They wanted to know everyone we'd met, what we were doing in the area, basically trying to find out if we were spies or not. Um, I mean, of course, you were like, oh, we've just been couch surfing and staying in opium dens and doing this and doing that. Our saving grace is that we've been hanging out with a lieutenant of the army there. Because everyone was through conscription. So we've been hanging out with a lieutenant who hated the army, who was an artist and a poet and a musician. And we slept in his basement for about three days. The fact that we were able to give his name seemed to uh, work okay because then he gave him a call and it was all fine and gave us, you know, the kind of a reference. And so then we're kind of, we're after, you know, feeling quite tired and disgruntled, we're like, oh, okay, cool. And then we're past the border and we walk out and realize the other side of the border, the Iraqi side, is pretty much just a road that goes so far in the distance and there's no one there. There's no shops, no restaurants, not even a house. So we're kind of standing at the side of the road trying to find another ride. Eventually we get one and uh, we just start walking down the road, walking past like mechanic shops, walking past butchers, bought a kebab, pretty much no idea what was going on, didn't have any internet. So you just pull up at a nearby cafe go on to couch surfing, get this guy who was a doctor in the Iraqi military, or sorry, in the Kurdish military. And he's like, yeah, no worries, I'll come down and I'll, yeah, I'll collect you guys, you guys can stay in my house, no problem. We were like, this is brilliant. And, uh, and this guy walks over out of nowhere and passes us what I can only call like a Nokia 3310. Really old school phone, mashes in a number, puts it in my hand and says, talk. So like, okay, fair enough. So I start talking to this guy on the phone. And being quite used to just like talking to strangers and accepting the situation and just chatting away. And I assumed it was just going to be some guy who probably had a friend in England or America or whatever it was, spoke English and just wanted to show off that he had a friend or whatever it is. It's quite a weird thing, but it happens quite often in this part of the world. And so I chat this guy and he's like, hey, how's it going? What are you doing in town? And uh, we were like, um, uh, we're just here as uh, just visiting. And he's like, do you need any fixes? Do you need any uh, any envoys or escorts? Do you need any you know, bulletproof jackets or anything? We were like, we're like no, no, we're fine. Um, no, no need. He's like, oh, I have many Irish friends. Why don't you come over to my hotel and, uh, you know, I'll sort you guys out with, uh, with the room and we can drink some whiskey. <laughs> I was like, this is possibly the weirdest phone call I've ever had. We were like, yeah, no worries. Look, we're staying with a friend now, but maybe we'll, we'll give you a shout then in the next day or two and we'll, we'll catch up on that. But uh, thanks for the call. So we kind of didn't think anything of it and spent the next, uh, the next day, you know, just or so, just kind of going around, going to the cinema, having local food, checking out the local sites, basically just being, you know, tourists um, in, in Iraq, <laughs> which I know most people find it hard to believe, but it's actually quite a nice place. And so two days passed, we're like, well, maybe we should check out that guy. So we went to this place called Dolphin Hotel, and, uh, and there's this French guy in the, in the lobby who's completely pissed. And to be honest with you, for the next three days, the French guy was entirely pissed the entire time. And so we ended up going out partying with this dude and we're sitting in the bar and, you know, all these Kurdish Peshmerga fighters and Peshmerga army would be, I guess, the most successful fighting force against um, ISIS. And we're coming here, having a bit of food, drinking some beers. We're end up, it turns into a lock-in. We're dancing around, doing the Peshmerga dance and the Kurdish dance and it's, it's just great fun. And, uh, and somewhere along the line, like we're calling all these guys and showing videos of them you know, fighting in Mosul and, and, you know, defending their 
their hometowns and stuff like that. Pretty admirable stuff. And of course, after a lot of whiskey and after a lot of these conversations and, and you know, falling in love with these guys, you know, their conversation arises where they're basically inviting us to come down and, and, and you know, show them their stuff. Like, I'll come down and, and see, you know, where we're camped out and what we're doing. We'll explain how it's all happening. And don't worry, there's no active firefight in the zone. You'll be totally fine. We can definitely smuggle you into it. And I was like, well, yeah, well, we got to get you past, like, uh, outside the Kurdish border. And what I realized then was there's actually a, a border of Kurdistan and Iraq within Iraq. And, uh, and the visa we had, we got a, a stamp on the border, only allows us into that northern territory. So we didn't think too much of it. And, um, and next day we wake up and, you know, the French guy still pissed, still drinking two borg in the, in the room that we're all sharing. And it turns out he's a journalist and he works at AFP Media. And he had arranged with the guy at the hotel, who's actually a fixer, and a fixer is someone who arranges all of this, this kind of mad stuff. If you're a journalist, they'll arrange convoys, armed vehicles, whatever it is you need, they'll get you to where you want to go. They're basically like your personal tour guide. So this guy had obviously arranged to try and get some photos for a newspaper and uh, paid a lot of money. And this guy was like, look, it's all been paid for. Why don't you join? And uh, I mean, obviously, next morning, we, he forgot about it, but he walked in and he was like, yeah, we're ready to go. Took me a few minutes to realize what he was talking about and uh, kind of rejoined with memories. Like, okay, yeah, I think I know what I'm supposed to be doing today. I looked at my mate and realized that maybe it wasn't such a good idea to agree, but the fact that these guys were so well connected and knew all the right people and, you know, having been well briefed in the scenario. So we walked downstairs and there's, uh, there's a commander of the Peshmerga army sitting there in a, in a military Humvee and uh, he's like, yeah, jump in the back. <laughs> um, okay, we're bundling down the road um, at record speed and we stop off at this town. And he's like, come here, we have to get you uh, dressed up properly. <laughs> like, why, what's wrong with the clothes I'm wearing? He's like, ah, look, if we're going to get you past this checkpoint, you need to be dressed apart. So he brings us this, like, military fatigue shop and pretty much, like, gives us the whole military uniform. So now I'm sitting there in, like, a Peshmerga uniform, the army uniform, sitting in the back of a vehicle, basically going towards a war zone and realizing, pretty hungover for this, to be honest with you. <laughs> so we're driving past probably the oil fields. And we rock up to this motorway, which basically acts like a defensive um, perimeter around the, the kind of the front line. And we're going to try to get through all these, all these checkpoints. And every checkpoint we go to, there are people on the checkpoint saying, oh, you can't come in here, you can't come in here. And keep in mind, we weren't really learned by checkpoints. We'd already gone through a checkpoint where basically we'd, we'd lied about being part of the effort. And um, yeah, so anyway, we're, we're going down this motorway, trying every checkpoint to turn off. We just can't get off. And eventually there's a blockade to so pull into the, into the side of the road. And uh, the, the big guy who had, you know, met us in a cafe, a few days ago and who had handed the phone to us and basically you know dumped out of the inside of the vehicle ran across the road and saw a friend of his came back and he's like look here's there's a situation that's at hand there's been you know land that we've taken from isis it's now you know back in isis hands and so they were having to just kind of discuss the strategy and that's why there's a blockade and that's why there's all the military presence here but um Luckily, you know, my friend's going to get us sorted, but we need to go and meet the general. Now, the fixer who we were with was looking pretty concerned. He's like, geez, I haven't met the general. This could be pretty serious. Like, are you guys actually journalists? Like, fair enough, this French guy is going to media pass, but I don't know about you lads. And we were like, okay, sure, no worries. He's like, oh, we'll give it a go anyway. So we drive back the way we came, and there's this old American military fort out there from the early days, and it's now basically a Kurdish fort. And we rock inside over the gravel, and as we you know, hopped out of the back. The whole base goes pretty quiet and starts watching us. And this guy comes out and I realised that this guy is actually pretty senior. So he's like the, you know, the leader of the Peshmerga army, you know, and this is like a pretty serious uh, outpost. Bring us in, sit us down. We're like, okay, so what are you doing here? And we're like, oh, sorry, I'm a freelance Irish journalist just looking to highlight the plight of what's happening here and what life is like on the front lines. And he's like, oh, very noble work. 
Uh, make sure you get lots of photos and gives us an escort. So we then have like these pickup trucks either side of us that then escort us back down to one of the initial checkpoints. We get through and we're driving past all these like, you know, tankers that have been painted with ISIS flags, all this land that's been recently re-grabbed back from ISIS. And the front line is not really what you think it is. It's like it's 300, you know, every 300 meters, you've got this like, you know, tall mound of dirt on top of Serenabai sandbags and, and brick and between these outposts you basically have a, a 12 foot tall mound of dirt so we jump out and all these soldiers are just they're over the moon they're like ah oh, finally someone to talk to we're bored out of our tits here so we said you know chatting away and um and we're just standing and they're like look would you mind if we get some photos of you guys I'm like yeah you know what get them photos i know it's a bit of a social media war between you guys and isis and they're you know putting up all these scaremongers putting the headings and whatever it is so they were like, they just, they want to have like pictures of them with media, with you showing that they have the world on their side. And, um, and I guess that's what we did. So we're sitting there like, you know, in front of piles of grenade belts and holding like heavy machine guns and military uniforms in this bunker in the front line. And it's a pretty surreal scenario. And then at some stage, I'm not sure what was said, but the guys were talking and kind of the, the, the soldier in, in command of the outpost basically talked to a fixer and looks pretty alarmed. Our fixer basically goes, we need to get out of here. So we end up running down this hill, jumping in our armoured vehicle, and shit starts getting active, and we just pretty much barrel and get out of there. And we had the most sombre experience driving home, realising that the guys who were just, you know, asking for photos and, you know, chatting away with are all of a sudden in an active fight. And, uh, and you know, and we're driving away. The whole experience was just mad. And I was just blogging about it that evening. I was just like, this is what happened. This is mental, blah, blah, blah. And I put it up. And it just starts going mad. I'm like, wow, this is really getting pretty a lot of traction. And what had happened was, obviously, tabloids take a story and they spin it whatever way. It's the tabloid one, like, the front line, the terror tourists and, you know, Irish guys say they were terrified, blah, blah, blah. And it was actually quite a calm and collected scenario. But again, the news is the news. Um, you know, it's on like, you know, headlines and uni lad, lad Bible of Irish guys drink whiskey and wake up drunk fighting ISIS in Iraq and all these mad stories. So yeah, pretty mad, mad scenario. And then I've been traveling for about 14 months at that stage. And I was pretty much, you know, ready to keep going. I still had some kind of savings. I booked flights to Cuba. Um, but I guess, you know, after the whole thing kind of blew up, there was a serious call from, you know, friends and family to just come home. Because they'd seen me kind of doing all these mad travel experiences and they were like, maybe this is the one that goes too far. Just, let's, let's just get you home. Um, whereas as far as I was concerned, I was, you know, on a serious trail of discovery of debunking media and, you know, travel and mindfulness and talks and everything else. And because I've been kind of talking the whole time. I've been traveling, giving talks in Tokyo and in Iran and stuff like that. Is that the reason you decided to come home and not continue because of family? Um, it's part of the reason, but also once I, I kind of come home, I was like, I'll come home for a week or two. And then, you know, I met my uncle uh, in, in London and, and told him about everything. And he was like, you know, maybe it would be good for you to stop for a minute, take in what's just happened over the course of the last 14, 16 months or whatever it is. And, uh, and just can make sure that you maintain the connection with people you have at home and then go on your merry way. And what happened was, because I'd come home and I was just like, Dublin's expensive, you know, especially not earning any money whatsoever. And I was just spending money and I was just staying home and I was enjoying kind of being home because I was just so used to living out of a bag. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, you know, it really feels nice to have a shower, have my own bed, have a routine. Maybe I'll just chill for a bit. And there was, you know, when, actually after we'd been to the front line, these soldiers had invited us to uh, basically a community hall. So we went into this community hall one night and we go through this, you know, this metal scanner. And we're sitting inside some of the safe places to drink because it's obviously it's in a, in a, in a, a secure compound. 
And I started hanging out bingo books. And I was like, okay, this is weird. Um, I don't understand how to read Arabic numbers. And so we're playing bingo in Arabic. No idea how to play. Your man's calling out numbers. I have no idea what's going on. Neither does my mate. So we started making a drinking game out of it. So each symbol, you know, had an association with a different rule. And before we knew it, the whole table's playing. We're standing up, we're dancing, we're drinking, you know, we're doing games. And, you know, coming home, and reflecting on the whole scenario, we were like, that was still one of the best nights that we've had in ages. And it's, I was like, it's so interesting how you can take something that's so conventional and turn it into a drinking game. And initially, you know, we were like, oh, maybe we could do like, uh, do like a night, get some mates over and, and, and do like a bingo drinking game. And then we were like, well, let's have a look online. And we found like, you know, there's loads of different types of bingo, you know, bingo parties around the world. We were like, let's make an Irish mega turbo bingo party and see if people like it. And so we invited a lot of our mates and because a lot of people hadn't seen me since I come back, they were just, they were mad to go to something that I was organizing. And so we had like 200 people at the first event for Bingo Loco. And it was the weirdest thing ever. We didn't really know what we were doing. It lasted about five hours, definitely way too long. We fell off the stage, absolutely exhausted, completely drunk because we were all drinking during the show. And there was a queue of people to the side of the stage who were like, whatever that was, you need to do that again. When's the next one? And I guess we just sold at every event afterwards and it just, you know we were like let's try an event outside of let's do one in Cork let's try one in Galway um, let's try one in Australia let's try one everywhere and it's now got to the stage where we do 550 events uh, in Ireland alone we entertain about 220,000 people globally doing Bingo Loco every year now it's pretty pretty surreal and all from a bingo hall in Iraq. Um, and do you fund each um, each event through just ticket sales or did you ever kind of venture into like investors or that kind of thing or you just it's completely your own? The great thing about events is that you have the collateral to run the event in advance of the event from the ticket money. So it's not like so if you're having an age if you have an agency and you're doing an event for someone, you know, you probably get maybe some of the money up front and then maybe some of the money after the event's done. Uh, whereas with a public face event, your revenue is your ticket money. Um, and sometimes you might even have some sponsorship. So we own 100% of the company. We've never had any external financing. Um, so pretty much we, we bootstrapped the entire thing from the start, um, which is good because it, it means when you have no money, you're being super, super creative. You know? And now, you know, being luck is at a stage where annually it turns over several million euro a year. Um, who knew? <laughs> and so what are the future plans for Bingo Loco? You mentioned that you do one in Australia and things. Is it just to kind of tour as many places as you can? Um, we don't really tour anymore. We actually have a headquarters in Sydney that runs several events in Australia throughout the year. So we do events in Perth, Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney. And we've done some shows in Darwin and a few other places as well. So it's not necessarily... Uh, touring thing we tour at the start to test that there's demand in the market um, and you know we try and actually in the, in the latter years we've tried to hit places where there's actually no Irish because it means that you don't do a tour all the Irish that are living in an area like you go to Vancouver there's loads of Irish loads of Irish in Sydney so you do a tour and it rams and it's full of Irish people it can give you a false representation of the demand for that product in that area because the Irish see it as like oh Bingo Luck's coming to town let's go with that that's the night out for the month um, whereas now we're going to places like Austin in, in Texas uh, where there's very little Irish and trying to make a Texan-focused product for Texan people and that allows us to gauge it much more accurately. But even in Scotland, in Scotland we've become a huge thing where we're selling out like the O2 Academy, um, Aberdeen, Edinburgh, wherever we go, we're selling out in Scotland. So it's, it's, it's big and, and the future basically means for us just trying to open up as many new cities as locations for us. So 
the UK and America will probably be the biggest markets for us once this whole COVID-19 thing goes away. And I'm not going to lie, it's pretty hard. We've just opened up a new bar. And so that company is obviously on ice now. We had a company that does corporate events called Event Labs. That's on ice now. We've got a special effects company that does, you know, confetti and CO2 for festivals and concerts. That's obviously on ice now. So, and obviously being a local, we had to reschedule a lot of our events. Pretty much going to be a third of our annual revenue just, just kind of thrown by the wayside for the year. So it's, it's pretty difficult. We've had to do layoffs. We've had to wind down a lot of our operations. Um, but, you know, if we take kind of the turtle shell approach of, you know, lock everything down, you know, lay off what we have to, employ who we have to, try and treat people as nice as possible, do some good for society, you know, when it means that when we're back up and running that, you know, people will have faith in us as a brand and, and be loyal to us. And hopefully when they are locked up for so long inside, they'll be itching to get out of the party and, and being our uncle will be the answer for a lot of people, hopefully. But I, I heard you list off a lot of different ventures there in one go. And I guess I'm just wondering how you managed to juggle them all. Um, initially it was very difficult, but you know, you don't, you don't say no to opportunities just because you have your hands full. You just find, you know, creative ways to take on those opportunities. So I think one thing I've learned in the last few years is when you find yourself being exceedingly busy, you, you learn to offload. So if you're doing a lot of time on a task, you find someone who's going to do that task and, and put yourself in a position where you're working on a business and not inside it. Um, so very rarely will I be getting back to customer inquiries very rarely will I be going to an event I find myself more often than not now sitting down with people and just discussing strategy on business and letting other people do the, do the actual work in, in leading it now, there's, there's a lot of ventures there I organise tours in Pakistan I give talks at Tech Life Balance there's obviously special effects there's bingo there's a corporate events there there's, a, uh, there's a, you know, a bar there and all these companies are all expanding and doing their thing but um, it's very much so an operational deployment of just strategy and making sure that everyone has the tools that they need to to grow those businesses. Um, and I'm very much so in an oversight and strategy role. And when you first came back from traveling for so long and all the crazy experiences that you had, did you find it difficult to reintegrate into normal life? And do you ever miss traveling? Um, do I miss traveling? I'll be honest with you. I've traveled to 18 countries this year. So um, it's one of those things where if you if you want to do it, you'll make time for it. So whether that's leaving the office at 4 p.m. on a Friday and legging it to the airport to catch a flight to somewhere and coming back then on, on Sunday late night, red eye, or late night flights, you, you'll find a way to travel if you want, you know. Um, and I mean, I, I organize adventure tours in Pakistan for groups of people. So I still get that dose of mental adventure in places that you normally wouldn't think are, are safe to travel. So I kind of, I get that dose of travel anyway. But it's, it's weird when you go away for a long period of time. That's different. That's a, that, that kind of puts your head in a different space where you're in isolation, really, because although you might be in like a city like Beijing, you're not really talking to anybody. You can't read the signs. You don't understand the language. Everyone's talking around you, but it may as well be white noise. You find yourself just wandering around a lot and filling time, looking at sites or whatever it is. So it can be quite lonely, um, unless you're in places where you can go socialise in bars or whatever it is. But it's... Uh, it's a, it's a weird headspace to get into, especially if you're in, in it for a very long time. And for, for a long time, months and months on end, over a year, I was pretty much inside my own head traveling. And that's, that's a huge place for growth if you do it constructively. And I found myself coming back uh, and I, you know, sitting in a bedroom in my parents' house, looking at the wall, being like, well, I'm a completely different person. And everyone else just seems to be, you know, stuck in the same thing. It's like I'd never left. Someone had got a new car, someone had got a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend, whatever it is. Um, but nothing really changed. I'd, I'd left, 
you know, basically in a relationship. And I think one of the reasons I'd stayed away for so long is because that relationship had ended while I was away. And I came back and that person was then in a relationship with somebody else. So it's, you come back to a whole different world. So although there's changes, everyone sort of seems kind of the same. Um, but what, you're, what takes a while to learn is that although it seems like everyone's the same, everyone's been through a huge amount as well in their own lives. Because um, within routine, there's change as well. So it took a while, you know, I had to get back into what it was like to have a working routine. I had to wear normal clothes again. I was still wearing sandals and, and had a necklace that was made for me by um, a backpacker in Iran around my neck. That was basically a, up like a dog collar. So I had to kind of change my wardrobe and get back into the running things again. My hair was too long. Um, it was just, yeah, I was really, really had my own on the road routine where you, you don't really care what you look like. I found myself being more curious about people that I'd met. It was weird, it was different, it was nice though. It was a welcome change. And do you have um, the ultimate end goal for you in the business world? I, I don't really have an end goal. And I think it's, it's important to have a goal, but for example, when someone goes, what's your five year plan? I think that's the most ridiculous question. You can make an aspirational blue sky thinking style goal of maybe like six months to 18 months or whatever it is. But realistically, what you're ever going to achieve, you'll know within, you know, a month's time. And so I guess I'd like to visualize where I'll be and it'll be an interesting road to get there. But I'm not really sure. I don't see myself wanting to have, you know, a very busy working lifestyle. I'd like to see myself working on more humanitarian projects. I'd like to see myself working on projects that are creative and then entertaining. And I guess I'm kind of doing all of that now, but I guess I, I don't really know, to be honest with you. I think, I think it'd be nice to think that, you know, there'll be loads of money and really successful, whatever it is, but my definition of success isn't really having loads of money. I think it's, it's being more personally grown, being more mindful, emotionally intelligent, being there as a supporting character people that need me you know learning to be more loving both to myself and to other people I think that's that's success money's a means to an end like I think it's anything we've learned from this COVID crisis is that you can have all the money you want but if you don't have your health it's not worth a damn you know yeah it's, it's so true I think as we were saying earlier as well like there is a few positive things to come out of the the COVID-19 crisis as, as well as a lot of negatives but one thing I think people will just appreciate time and what they already have way more um, and hopefully everyone will slow down a bit. Um, also then, just my last question for you. If I could put your 10-year-old self in front of you now from where you're sitting and having been through everything that you've been through, what's the biggest piece of advice you would give yourself? Um, just to chill out, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, I tend to like work a million miles an hour and I make an idea and I go for it. But I think even my 20-year-old self was someone who you know, was constantly saying yes to everything, running a million miles at every project, um, being extraordinarily busy and realizing that I probably should just focus and chill on, on certain things. And I know that sounds very counterintuitive when I'm telling you have a, you know, a million companies in flow, but it's, it's, to, it's to focus on things that matter the most and not things that, you know, make you hear a certain way. Don't try to please people. Um, just work on the things that, that mean the most to you because you don't really feel like you're working. Like I don't ever get up in the morning and I'm like, oh, dragging my feet to the office up in the morning and like I can't wait to see other people in the office they're all a big bunch of mates like I'm really lucky that it's a pleasure to do what I do and so the advice I'd give to my 10 year old self is just to focus on the things that are fun because if it feels like work you're doing it wrong yeah that's really good advice um I think 
everyone's goal in life is to find something that they're passionate about and be able to make that their day to day, which it sounds like you've done. So um, yeah, it was really cool chatting to you. Thanks so much for answering all my questions today. No, an absolute pleasure. And uh, look, I hope you have a great success with your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, please rate, share and leave a comment if you like what you hear. And don't forget to follow at What It's Like Pod on Instagram and Facebook. For more information on Bingo Loco and Will's other businesses, visit the links in the show notes and watch his TED Talks on YouTube. I'll be back next week with more inspiring stories. But for now, this has been What It's Like with Luce.